This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So with this next round, I thought we'd go through the process and record the process as we go. I have a question, though. So we're covering a serial killer that we'll talk about him a little later. Um, We have a time frame for the serial killer, like a timeline, and we have a rough geographic area that we're hoping um, to get some expert input on narrowing that down with... With what I'm doing today and what I've been looking at, I had a question for you. I am looking at um, uh, teenagers in the 90s who went missing. And what do you do when you come across a teenager that wasn't, I guess I should ask it generally and then maybe more specifically about the teenager. What do you do when, say, a 16, 17-year-old girl goes missing and there's really not, I don't want to say it's not media coverage, but that's part of it. They just sort of vanish into the ether and there's no information out there, but they have a really suspicious disappearance. Like what first, so twofold. One, why does that happen? And then two, what do you do to track that person down if you can? Well, uh, the reason why it happens, I think, is because it's it may seem suspicious, you know, to some people, and clearly somebody's reported the teenager missing, but there's no push from family members to get it out there and keep it going. Now, with teenagers in the 90s, I mean, all of those teenagers would be adults by now, right? And so they're either out there uh, living their life after they were missing or something has happened to them, right? You'll, you, I'm sure you've seen in research that it's like drastically reduced um, over time. Like, so for example, if we looked at all the missing teenagers from 2022, which is this year, um, there's going to be a ton of them and a ton of them that are going to no longer be there in 20 years when we look at it, right? Because they're going to have been found. Um, now, so keeping that in mind, looking at teenagers missing in the 90s now, you know, there's a lot less of them, right? Uh, there's a lot more that you have to kind of look at and you have to you can't just say like, oh, they ran away because that's more than likely not true, right? I mean, it, it's not always going to be not true, but it it's weird that a teenager wouldn't have come back by now if they were fine. 
Um, some kids really do take off and they start their own lives and they really don't ever look back, but they're only missing to whomever has reported them missing. They're not actually missing people. And what I do about it is uh, the majority of the time, really all you can do is uh, you can do a general search and sometimes we find these people or who we think are these people. And, you know, it takes quite a few verifications to be like, yeah, that's that missing person. Things like birthdays matching. Um, other, that's a big one for me. Uh, if not birthdays matching, at least about the same age. Um, there, so, you know, you can do that. Or, unfortunately, the other thing is to look at uh, bodies found, right? <laughs> um and, you know, see if anything looks familiar, if they've been ruled out, um, you know, and sometimes that'll work itself out and sometimes it doesn't. But if you don't find a, uh, you know, a possible match in unidentified bodies and you don't find a possible match in someone who is alive, well, they go in sort of this other pile <laughs> where you, you start... Um, looking for additional clues uh, as far as what has happened to them. like, And that's where every little detail of the circumstances of their disappearance becomes relevant because you're looking at a situation where, you know, it's been, depending on when in the 90s, it's been over 20 years since this person has gone missing. And uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of details we're going to be able to gather based on what happened, you know, over 20 years ago. And so we have to rely on what's out there. And I start looking for trends. When you say a trend, like what, what are you considering to be a, a trend well, that you find? Okay, so this wasn't... Um, this isn't exactly teenagers in the 90s, but uh, I was working on it this morning, and so I can tell you this. Uh, we have segmented off certain criteria for searches, and we have databases that we work with. Um, and in, let's see, I believe... Let me, I'm going to see how many I've got here total. Uh, this is a group. So this would be like a, a certain age uh, range, a certain time range, and a certain geographical range. If, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Now, I have um, 135 uh, subjects in this particular – actually, I guess it's 134 subjects in this particular uh, spreadsheet. All right. And so I make notes through these cases. Uh, again, this is based on an age range, a geographical range, and a, and a time range. And in all of their, and I sort it by the oldest case coming up to like the last case in the range, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. And so uh, in this, I make obscure notes that probably mean nothing to anybody but me, except it's, it, this is a really great example. Uh, so, you know, two through 135 are all these random missing subjects. And it just so happens that when 
as it sorted from the oldest case coming forward to the last case in the range. So I have this situation where I've got it sorted from oldest case uh, coming up to the last to the end of the the time range. And 23, 24, and 25 are all three uh, cases where girls disappeared around their vehicle or last known to have been going to their vehicle or something to that effect. And the only thing that is missing is their keys. Okay. Now. Well, well I kind of like, okay, so what stood out to you? Like, what were you thinking? Like, what's the scenario where the only thing that's missing is their keys? And then we're going to cover these. You said there's three of them. There's three of them. Okay. So we'll cover them today, but I want to hear you. But here's, you, but here's my point though. Okay. It's, it's really important to understand that. Uh, do you have any idea how many uh, missing people are in NamUs right now? I can. So you just want to know the missing persons? There's two, 21,629 missing persons in NamUs. So that may not be the exact number by the time people hear this, but that's the number with what we were working okay. on. Okay. And so you said it was around 21,000? 21,629. Okay. So uh, what I'm saying is, what do you think statistically the odds are that I put in criteria? Now, I haven't removed anybody uh, from this particular spreadsheet. Every single person that fit the area, the time range, and the age range is on, and gender, I'm doing girls, uh, females, uh, is on my spreadsheet. Now, it's only 134 people, right? Right. Okay. Everything, I, I haven't manipulated any case except it, uh, to order it in its place and time. So it's going to start with the very oldest case and it's going to work its way all the way through the time range and uh, time range up to the, the newest case, right? Okay. What are the statistical odds that three cases in a row, in a row, would all be girls who were like on their way to their car, last seen, last known to be headed to their car, and only their keys are missing. It's something that like you want to look further at. Now, there is a significant geographic difference in some of these. Right. It, you're absolutely right. There is a significant geographic uh, difference. However, it's things like that that always catch my attention because it is, I mean, cause you've got situations in here where you've got people who have left their life behind people who are victims of murder that like they've been con the, they've had convictions in their murder. They're just still missing p people because their bodies haven't been found. Uh, you've got all kinds of different cases happening here, right? All kinds of stuff, stuff that's, uh, a lot of it's irrelevant to me, but I don't take it off the list. I just mark it, right? Okay. It's, it would be the same thing as if I, okay, maybe I could put it this way. What if I had three cases in a row that were all 
non-custodial parental abductions, right? Three cases in a row of that are all non-custodial parental abductions, um, which means basically the parent that didn't have custody of the child took them, right? Okay, that mean that literally means that like there it's not true crime. More than likely, there's no reason for us to have any involvement in it. It's a domestic situation between parents, right? Yeah. Okay, it is still extraordinarily odd when you've set up a a set of data to run uh, sequentially from the oldest case up to the newest case. So that means it's in a linear time fashion. It is highly unlikely that you're going to come across three cases that are all non-custodial parental abductions in a row like that. Okay, I would agree with that. Okay, so what are the what's the likelihood that I'm going to come up with three cases in a row where girls were missing and the uh, uh, girls were missing, like headed to their vehicles, and the only thing missing is their keys. Now, I believe all three of these cases, like their car was pseudo abandoned. So it's not like they're at home, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily that their car is out on the street, uh, out on the highway, right? Right. But something occurred where the last time they were seen, they were like, bye guys, I'm going to my car, something to that effect. And then they don't show up at the next place they're supposed to be. When they're found, uh, when their vehicles are found, Uh, Sometimes they may be where they were left. They may not be where they were left. But the only thing missing is the key. So they didn't take their purse. They didn't take their ID. You know, depending on the circumstances, did they get back to their vehicle and put their purse in the car, right? Right. What makes a girl leave her car with just her keys? Okay. All right. Now, if you think about the whole non-custodial parent thing, where having three of those in a row without any other cases in between, uh, based on a, a data set that is very varied, right? Yeah. It, it's odd. So in this case, I think that that's something to look at with the girls without their, uh, with they're missing with their car keys because it's just a very odd thing. Yeah. So, all right. <clears throat> Let me start just to give some context to this. Um, I think I'm just going to do them in order of their dates that they've been missing since. Uh, I think, but I'm 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 going to cover just I'm going to cover them one at a time. So I'm going to do the first one being the 10-29-1982 case. I'm just going to give like a brief description of what's going on there. Does that work for you? Yeah. Okay, so this is a girl named Angela Gray Hamby. Um, she's been missing since October 29, 1982, when she left her home in Wilkesboro, North Carolina at 9.30 a.m. to make a car payment for herself and a deposit for her mother at the NCNB Bank. Afterwards, she planned to deliver a message to her sister, who was up the street from the bank, then return home to go on an out-of-town shopping trip with her mother. So this girl's got plans. 
Um, 9.30 in the morning, she leaves her house. She's headed to the bank. She's going to a very specific place. When she doesn't arrive home by noon, her mom calls the bank and discovers that she never made it there. She also had not been to see her sister, and she's never been heard from again. Later on that day, Hamby's silver 1980 Mazda RX-7 was found unlocked and abandoned at Glenn's Tasty Freeze in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. So this same city doesn't go out of the town. It was parked in the back near the dumpsters. It had a full tank of gas, and inside were Hamby's pocketbook and her driver's license. Her keys were gone, and so was the money that she had been carrying. So this is the deposit for her mom and the car payment that she was going to make. Witnesses reported that Hamby was last seen at 11.30 a.m. driving her car to the location where it was found. She was accompanied by a rough-looking blonde man at the time and was talking to him. She has never been heard from again, and a sketch of that suspect can be found. It looks like the Wilkesboro Record has it, the Charlotte News and Observer has it, the Doe Network has the sketch, and the Charlie Project also has a picture of the sketch. Um, So it can be found on any of of those profiles for Angela Hamby. Hamby is described as a dependable person who would not have left without telling anyone. And she graduated from West Wilkes High School and had a job uh, in data processing at Northwestern Bank, which was on Oakwood Road there. She had enrolled at Wilkes Community College and hoped to transfer over to Appalachian State University. There were two suspects that were investigated for possible involvement in Hamby's case in 1987, so five years later. But they turned out to have been incarcerated at the time of her disappearance, so they were ruled out. And her case remains unsolved. So her physical description, uh, Angela Gray Hamby, was 20 years old. She was a white female. She was five foot four inches tall, weighed about 108 pounds. She was last seen wearing a cream V-neck sweater under an orchid-colored uh, oversweater with blue jeans, socks, sandals. Uh, she had a new diamond and sapphire ring, and she had a gold at-a-bead necklace. So it's like a, a necklace where you can, uh, I don't know how many beads it had on it, but you can put little beads on with it. Uh, her car was a silver 1980 Mazda RX-7, but that has been accounted for. So she had blonde hair and bluish-green eyes, uh, and her nickname was Angie. Okay, so just taking her, um, you know, she's got a nameless profile entry. She's on the Charlie Project. Uh, They talk about her on WebSleuths. There's a couple of different things where uh, she pops up on on Reddit and uh, some of the abandoned sites. In your opinion, is there anything that stood out to you about uh, her case. Right. Well, uh, initially I did mark that, uh, she was missing, uh, with her car having been found and I, I believe it was in working order. I don't know that I saw that, but I assumed it was. And I, I marked it that she was missing with only her car keys. Uh, and it was not significant, uh, in and of itself, obviously right. somebody has taken her. They didn't take her money. I don't know how much money it was, but uh, that's typically not a great sign if somebody didn't take their money because, I mean, if like if she's abducted and the money's not taken, that means they're not going to rob her, right? Yeah. Um. So in and of itself, I mean, it is, it, 
it's a terrible case, but not at first. Nothing stood out at first because I, what I wrote was maybe uh, as it pertains to the research I'm doing and I wrote only keys missing. Okay. So with her, one of the websites I stumbled across on her, this guy had done some work. So he put me a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, this is at abandonednc.org. Um, you, you can check out what they've got going on. For the most part, he sort of regurgitates, or uh, the website sort of regurgitates what is being said on the Charlie Project. Um, they've definitely gone and done some driving around the area uh, because they do confirm some of the details from NamUs and the, the Charlie Project. So it gets a little more specific. Uh, he, the, the posting on abandonednc.org about Angela Hamby references the fact that the family thought that whatever happened to her happened at a gas station. And the reason they thought that was because when the car was found, the tank was full. When she left the house, the tank was empty, and she had referenced the fact that she was going to have to uh, to get some gas after they thought she was going to do it either on the way or after going to NCNB, which is the bank she was headed to, um, and possibly even after she goes to Burke's Jewelers, which is where her sister was working, which was close to the bank. Um, they're not 100% sure what happened there, but there was a Wilco station on US 421. They sort of pegged us. That would be the place that uh, this could have happened. And they note on Abandoned NC that, you know, this is a tasty freeze on a Friday around lunchtime. So uh, there was an employee at the Tasty Freeze who claimed to have seen Angie in the passenger seat of her car and that there was a male person in the driver's seat and that it, uh, the woman from the Tasty Freeze said it looked like they were arguing. Uh, that is where the sketch appears to have come from because it does, it does not seem like anybody else saw her. So whether that's accurate or not, we're kind of we're sort of guessing. Um, we hope it would be. Uh, the money is missing. The looks like he's collected some of the tips from around the internet that I found other places or excuse me, abandoned in C has collected the tips that are sort of around the internet here at the bottom. There are people talking about the, uh, in the community, whether the police could have been involved, which that's a pretty common thing that comes up in different cases. Uh, the case is, uh, in some way still active and there's a reference on here that they looked into serial killer Christopher uh, Bilo. Um, we talked about Christopher Bilo before. Um, apparently, someone on Web Sleuth sent in a uh, like a picture of Chris Bilo side by side with a composite drawing, which is sort of like a it's a pretty generic white guy composite drawing with a little bit longer hair. In fact, I was going to rule out the person that we're getting at. I didn't, though, because I realized this would have been just prior to them going into the service. Uh, so we don't know what they looked like right before they went into the service. I have older pictures of them, and I have pictures post-service. Um, but they went into um, the U.S. military at a time where I could definitely see this being a year and a half. It's about a year and eight months ahead of that. I could definitely see something happening here where this suspect looked like that. Um, also, this was around the time when people had started to report the, the, the suspect that we get to a little later on as uh, he was, he was taking road trips and he was doing burglaries. Now we don't know 
how accurate that information is. Um, and it sort of comes from his family. So it could be that it's a watered down version of what's happening. Uh, I've gone through and read a number of things about um, Angie Hamby. In, uh, and and I, I'm using her nickname there just to kind of differentiate her as we go along. I've, I've read multiple different things. But the bottom line is she is a, a young, pretty girl, which I hate to like qualify her that way but but it's the truth you know she's a 20 year old girl um she's had a decent amount of coverage uh she was driving a, an interesting car she had a bunch of cash on her there is a possibility that whatever happened to her might have been either random or or, or robbery motivated but i do think your observations that the keys are missing in this case there's a and another case com- coming up that's also in North Carolina that to me says that could be a guy that's pushing his way into her car um, which oddly enough in the 90s um, my prime reason for doing this the, the the person that I'm sort of digging into he was known for trying to get women to pull over their cars we think and he definitely stopped at least three places and picked up younger victims so i'm with you on the maybe it's interesting that you brought that up because according to my data set which um is exactly uh what i said earlier if you go back it is uh it's the fourth person before this but it's the same age so she's uh, another 20-year-old. Uh, she was taken from a gas station while she was at work. Okay, so now that we've talked about Angela for a second, and if you know anything about Angela's case, you know, now's the time to come forward in the world and and talk about her a little more. She gets some coverage here and there in the local news to her, and there are some podcasts out there that have, you know, used uh, her in part of a, uh, a one-off. Um, the case that you're referencing next is Kelly Berg Dub, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, this isn't the only reason she's come up now is because you found the additional information about the gas station. She wasn't, she didn't catch my attention until you said that. But I put a, I put a yes and a question mark on her because uh, there were some other elements of her case that didn't make a whole lot of sense. But well, well, let's cover her now. Then I'm going to come back to these other cases involving the, the young women in Keys. Okay, so Kelly Berg Dove was last seen working at the Imperial Gas Station on South Main Street, Route 11 in Harrisburg, Virginia, on June 18th of 1982. This gas station was located on an isolated section of road about a mile south of, the James, Ma- of James Madison University. Now, it wasn't just Kelly that worked there. Her sisters also worked there. So she had traded out shifts with one of them that evening. During her shift, she called the police department and she reported that there was a male customer who had harassed her. She explained that she was working alone and she asked if the police could come keep an eye on her. A short time later... She called the police again and said the man had come into the station and was dressed improperly. It's not clear what she meant by this, but 
the implication and the inference that we we have is that he was exposing himself to her, which ties back into my suspect. At 2.30 a.m., Dove called the authorities a third time, and she sounded frightened. She said the man was back. He used a payphone outside the gas station to call her, and he had been making obscene comments. So he's, he's standing outside the gas station, calling inside the gas station in 1982. There's no cell phones or anything like that. This is like peak harassment going on here. She said that he was driving a silver or gray vehicle, possibly a Ford, and she asked the police if they would send someone to help her. There was a shuffling noise inside on the phone, and then the line went dead. So the implication that we can take away from that is that possibly the two of them getting into it, he took the phone away from her and hung it up, or he cut the line. Authorities say they arrived at the gas station about two minutes later, so two minutes after the conversation is terminated, and no one's there. Dove's purse and a magazine she had been, re- she had been reading were left sitting on the counter. Uh, a cigarette had burned out in an ashtray, and there was no signs that the store had been robbed. There was no signs of a struggle, but there's also no clues as to what had happened to Kelly. She's never been heard from again. Investigators estimated it would have taken about 15 seconds to abduct Dove, force her into a vehicle, and drive off. Her family thinks that whoever it was must have been armed because they described her as the sort of person who would have fought back if they could. Someone working at a nearby convenience store said a man driving a gray car stopped at the store about a half an hour before Dove disappeared. Now, this witness describes almost the exact same person who was in the other sketch. They're describing a man that's 20 to 25 years old with shoulder-length blonde hair. There's no proof that he's involved in Dove's disappearance, but he is still sought to talk to about this, even 40 years later. Dove's sister stated that obscene phone calls and gestures were very common when women working at the gas station were alone at night. However, the call stopped almost entirely after Dove disappeared. In the six weeks following her apparent abduction, the station only got one such call. Dove's parents believe a man she went to high school with was responsible for her disappearance. That individual, who has not been named publicly, had a record for indecent exposure and making obscene phone calls. He's never been charged in connection with her case, and investigators do not believe Dove was specifically targeted by anyone. They think her presumed abduction was a crime of opportunity. Committed after the kidnapper noticed that there was a woman, a young woman, working alone in a gas station at the time. She'd been married for five years at the time of her disappearance, and she lived in Bridgewater, Virginia, with her husband and her four-year-old daughter. Her loved one stated she was happy with her marriage and being a mother, and she had no reason to leave of her own accord. In 1989, uh, after Dove had disappeared, uh, her parents began raising her daughter, and they officially had her declared dead in 1989 for purposes of um, caring for the, the custody of her daughter. And the gas station has been torn down. So the particulars on Kelly Berg Dove, now Berg is her uh, maiden name, uh, Kelly Dove, she was 20 years old the time that this happened. Um, her birthday was uh, August 30th, 1961. She was five feet, one inches tall. She weighed 105 pounds. She was last seen wearing a, a light-colored pinstripe V-neck sweater and tan or cream-colored slacks. Uh, she had sandals, uh, and she was wearing a Turner Ashby high school class ring. She had brown hair, 
and she had a partial plate uh, in place of her two front teeth. She wore contact lenses um, or her eyeglasses. She has a scar on the back of her head. She has a small scar on her forehead at the the hairline and an additional scar on the lower back of her head. And in 1982, she smoked cigarettes. Uh, and this information comes from the Charlie Project, uh, The Hook, The Daily News Record, uh, The Doe Network, and the Virginia State Police. Uh, there is some information here that's been repeated from the Stoughton News Leader and the Newport News Daily Press. So you see that connection, right? Yeah, and it should be noted that at the time that this is taking place, okay, so just to orient everybody where this takes place, um, if I've got this correctly in my head, this is going to be about 30 minutes west of Shenandoah National Park. So it's, you know, in the same area as some of the crimes that we'll be getting to as we go. It's only two hours west of like Spotsylvania um, and about maybe an hour and a half north and west of Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm just trying to orient everyone to understand like, you know, where this is geographically that Kelly Berg Dove is going missing from. So what did you see there? What did you look at and go, well, that's interesting. Um, it, it's so random. Um, and you know, like I said, uh, sometimes for me personally, when I'm researching, uh, you know, with a certain parameter on, uh, true crime history, right? <laughs> this is stuff that is not, it didn't happen, you know, recently. This is uh, much older cases. And, you know, if I were to tell you, which I actually didn't know, which is why we do additional research um, to find as much information as we can. And it takes teamwork, right? Like we both have to sort of give it the old podcast try because we both bring different things to the table. But um, I felt like I didn't actually know, and I don't know why, I just wasn't paying attention. But um, with Kelly's case, I didn't realize that the guy was just standing outside calling. And he was in I a had, phone booth, yeah. Right. And so I made a note that like the prank, I've said like yes with a question mark, but then I was like the prank phone calls don't really fit any sort of the MO that we previously have or what, what I had in mind. Right. And so, but, and so that was weird, but everything else about, um, her disappearance, it, it was going along with what I'm researching this particular data set for. Right. Which right. now, if I were to tell you that during, uh, like for, let's see, 32 years over the course of is it 32 or 22 years over the course of 20 years that, uh, in a geographical location, uh, having broken it down the way we did. Now there are cases in between this, but as far as 20 year olds go, these two 20 year olds would be like, if we were just looking at 20 year olds, this would be side by side. Right. Right. Okay. And so we've got um, Kelly Dove who was working at a gas station and suddenly she wasn't there any longer. And then uh, a few months later, and that's in Harrison, 
Harrisonburg, Virginia? Yep. Okay. And a few months later, you've got um, Angie Hamby in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, who it's thought something happened to her at a gas station, right? Like it possibly, yeah. Like she, well, it by a it, similarly described man. That's like the big thing for me. Right. And so I didn't make the connection immediately until we started piecing it together. But to me, like of all the cases that there ever were of, you know, girls that have gone missing, these two are back to back. Well, not only that, if you drive straight down US 29 South from Harrisonburg, you come to Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Now, I have not heard these be associated with other similar crimes that we're going to get to happening, you know, on 29. I have think, I, no, they're, they're not necessarily associated. And I think it's a geographical problem. Plus, I think some of these cases sort of go under the radar for different confirmation bias problems that we'll be sort of conquering as we go along in this new series of episodes. And here's how that works. First of all, you have stuff that's taking place on federal lands. You have stuff that's taking place in, you know, local jurisdictions. And then you have stuff that's in that in-between that would fall into counties or a state bureau would have to investigate it. So you have multiple agencies involved, but you also have multiple uh, so even then you have different states, just these two that we looked at. You have two sets of, of, of jurisdictions that don't necessarily communicate in the early 80s the way they do today. You got to remember, there's no Internet, like there's barely fax machines. The bulk of what happens takes place through newspapers, teletypes and phone calls. So when you are limited in the type of communication you're having and you don't have email bolos and you don't have really any other way to get the information out beyond different types of teletyping, you can get lost in the shuffle. But looking back on those cases, uh, we had a reason to look at them and put them together. Not everybody else has. So what I've noticed is, um, and, and this goes on for a number of years, I had you expand the parameters um, of where you started because I was concerned about the suspect's age. I wanted to move it down as far as I could. Um, at this point in time, one of the things that's starting to match up for me is he's around these girls' age, a little bit older. So he would have had a reason to interact with them. Now, I do have some concerns that even though they, this person is described as being 20 to 25, I don't know, I don't know how someone would call the cops and describe this guy. I don't know if you would describe him well, as a right. boy or a man. Well, and I guess to me, I always take composite drawings with a grain of salt. Um, I give a little more credence to some like higher quality surveillance video, which is not going to be the case in any of these cases. But I'm just saying I do consider composites, okay? I consider them. Right. They do not discount uh, any suspect to me. I feel like um, it is actually more likely than not in these two cases that y you could be looking at the same suspect 
like even if he doesn't look like the composite, right? Yeah, like people could have had the the same idea about him. Sure, it's just it's so astronomically unlikely that these crimes happened the way they did in the order that they did, I guess. Um it with all the different things that happened to people and you know, the only two women that are uh left missing it, as far as Namus is concerned, that of 20 years of age, uh, the only two 20-year-olds missing between June 19... and October of 1982 are, they both disappeared or had some, uh, I'm sorry, Kelly Dove uh, disappeared while she was working at a gas station and it's thought that Angie Hamby was maybe had her car jacked with her in it at a gas station. Yeah. It is. Uh, it's a, it's an odd thing. I don't know yet if it's going to be like the only ones I'm not saying I definitely agree with your observation. I'm just saying if I were to expand this and include more States and more 20 year olds, we might I, find more cases. Sure. Um, and they might be irrelevant to one another, but you have to start somewhere. And Absolutely. I think you, I believe you picked the parameters here and then I sort of adjusted them, but you know, we're trying to give some explanations of sort of how we get where we're going. Right. And this is, uh, I mean, this literally happened uh, while I was working uh, before we started recording and it just happened to be a good example. Yeah. So we're using this example and we've got two more cases to put in there. So right. And this doesn't mean anything really, except not that. Yet. Right. Except that it's on my radar and I'm starting to notice a trend. Now, I have to be careful when I start this stuff because I'm really good at just making up what I wanted to have happened to happen, right? <laughs> and so I have to keep myself in check and I follow uh, the evidence. Now, uh, what I consider evidence is a lot different than like what law enforcement would consider evidence because I'm not there. It's you know, there's no way for me to be back in time investigating these cases. And so if I if I can find it, you know, at a reputable spot, like, for example, NamUs, you know, I, I consider that to be at least well-intentioned fact, right? Even if it ends yeah. up being uh, something's not correct, I have to go by what's stated. Right. No, I understand that. So... With these cases, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a brief overview of the next one. Uh, this is Darlene Webb. Now, this takes place a significant distance away from where we were just talking about. It actually takes place in Daytona Beach, Florida, on January 22nd, 1983. Darlene Webb left a Daytona Beach, Florida nightclub called the Beachcomber at 1:30 a.m. on January 22nd, 1983. She and some friends went to the friend's car, and they all parted ways. She said she was going to her own car, which was a Chevrolet Chevette that was parked about a block away. She had to be at work early the next morning, and so she didn't want to stay out too late. Darlene never arrived home. Her vehicle was located later in the day 
on Greenview and Seabreeze Avenues, where she originally parked the night before. There was no sign of a struggle in or near the car. Her purse, her driver's license, her wallet, her money, and her eyeglasses, and all of her other personal belongings were inside of the vehicle. The only thing that appeared missing was her keys. Now, she has never been seen again. Darlene's family believes that she may have been taken against her will by person or persons unknown. They describe her as a responsible young woman who would have not left without telling anyone. Uh, Her loved ones theorize that Webb may have memory loss as a result of her presumed abduction and may not recall her identity. She's a graduate of Seabreeze High School and was employed as the assistant manager of a Chick-fil-A restaurant in 1983. She was taking classes at nearby Daytona Beach Community College. She lived with her mother and brother at the time of her disappearance. Her parents were separated and her father lived elsewhere, but Webb did not have any reported problems with this. And at the time she went missing, she was active in the local Baptist church and she sang in the choir. Webb's social security number and birth certificate have not been used since her 1983 disappearance. Her case remains unsolved. Now, this information comes from the Charlie Project, NamUs, the Daytona Beach Police Department, uh, the Daytona Beach News Journal, the Orlando Sentinel and Doe Network, as well as uh, an archived version of Someone is Missing. Darlene Webb was 5 feet 6 to 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighed around 120 pounds. She was 20 years old. Her birthday was July 18, 1962. She was last seen wearing a printed skirt, a white blouse, white flats, a golden diamond necklace that was engraved with her name, Darlene, D-A-R-L-E-N-E, a gold necklace with a small buttercup pendant with a diamond, and another necklace that had a Virgin Mary pendant. Uh, her Chevrolet Chevette has been accounted for. She had brown hair, brown eyes, and she has a burn scar on her left hand. Uh, Darlene's nickname is Dee Dee. Her ears are pierced. She wears eyeglasses for reading, but she did not have them with her at the time that she vanished. Uh, and also, I noticed that in some of the sources here, uh, Fran Webb originally had a website. I could not access that uh, at the time that I was looking up information about. I assume that's her mother? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a pretty good article from April of 2021. I believe it was on Medium because uh, once I pulled it up, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't able to get back to it. It basically stated that uh, it had like the original missing persons flyer on it from uh, someone is missing. Uh, and it stated that there was, there were reports of someone being uh, forced into a car. Now, in July of 2006, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department released more than 80 photographs that had been seized from the home of William Richard Bradford in 1984. Bradford was arrested and later convicted of killing his teenage neighbor. But authorities had long suspected that Bradford might be a serial killer. He had traveled throughout the country claiming he could help women get a start in the modeling industry, and he took numerous photographs of potential models in his cross-country travels. This is a set of information from the uh, Sheriff's Department of Los Angeles County, their Homicide Bureau. They released these photographs in an attempt to identify the women to see if any of them might have known uh, Bradford or been one of his unknown victims. One of the photographs showed a woman who looked a lot like Darlene, and Fran Webb, Darlene's mom, believed that it was, there was a possibility it was her daughter. And police were aware that Bradford had traveled through Daytona Beach on more than one occasion. 
So it became a popular theory that Darlene might have become uh, one of his victims. Unfortunately, William Bradford died in San Quentin prison in 2006. And while some of the women he photographed have since been found alive, one of those photographed was eventually identified as Donnelly Duhamel. Um, this is a woman whose decapitated corpse had been discovered in Malibu in 1978. At the time, authorities had not been able to determine her identity. Uh, she was buried as a Jane Doe, and she had met Bradford in a bar just days before her body was found. Most of the women that were photographed by Bradford remain unidentified, and it's still unknown, one, if Darlene's one of his victims, and two, if it's actually her photograph. Her family believed that Darlene was shown in one of his photographs, but police determined that the particular picture they were looking at, based on the background, had probably been taken in California. So the pictures in California, that would take this like sort of large leap in logic where you have to theorize that Bradford not only abducts Darlene in Florida at the time and place she's last seen, but also takes her to California and she's still posing and smiling for these photographs. Police don't think this is a likely scenario. It would have involved uh, too much of a leap in logic. Right. Um, and um, also you have to consider the fact that like she's leaving her friends because she needed to go home uh, because she had to get up. I mean, she says she didn't want to stay out too late, but it's 1.30 a.m. But it doesn't seem to be that um, that was his, like, the way he operated. He was, like, more like baiting girls into becoming models than being, like, you know, meet me to take pictures. And that's just a whole different situation. Yeah, so Darlene was um, references extremely dependable. And it was actually Darlene's manager from Chick-fil-A who alerted Darlene's mom, Fran, to the fact that, like, uh, she had not shown up to open the restaurant. So Fran was not as concerned with Darlene not being home. She was concerned when Darlene didn't show up at work. Um, and her car had been found with the passenger side window rolled down. The seat was reclined as if someone had been sitting on the passenger side and there was a lot of cigarette butts in the, in, cigarette butts in the car. Supposedly, Darlene was not a smoker and would not have let anyone smoke in her car. And... Whether they kept any of that for evidence, I have no idea. But Darlene is firmly in my, we have to look into this further pile. I think, I, I don't want to say that, I, I, this is my maybe pile. I don't know what you call this. You, you sort of mark these as maybe. Um, I can't rule her out at this point as being a part of the other stuff we're looking for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I didn't realize about the whole car situation. So somebody was sitting in her car? Possibly. That's, uh, it's reported that that was the case. I don't... I Well, that would involve somebody, I guess, um, what, leaving? That, see, that just, that doesn't really fit with... It just means they have another car. Right, but in order, I mean, she did put her purse and stuff up in the car, and she just took her keys with her, but it, in my mind, that, like, I, I'm not sure that that would be accurate, but, I mean, if somebody has, you know, said it, it's not in... I, I don't, no, no, I don't have it officially, I'm just saying that I, well, that's, that's what included. I mean, yeah. yeah, but see, little details like that change things for me, because, um... It doesn't well, I haven't verified that. I'm sorry that I brought it up because I don't. No, no, no. It's just I imagine in her case, like, um, it. 
I would have to rethink it as all. There's nothing wrong with the fact that, you know, somebody has said that. Um, it is relevant and it would be great if they had kept some of the cigarette butts. But I have a feeling that, like, when she was reported missing, initially law enforcement was probably like, oh, she'll come, you know, uh, she'll come home in a few days when she's done gallivanting or whatever. That would be my guess. I mean. Well, I'm not going to make a decision on her case based on the cigarette butts alone or the condition of the car. That You're right. We have to consider that, and it becomes like a question for me where I have to, one, is that evidence is still available? But two, is it accurate information that we're getting in the first place? Right, and so what we do know for certain is that she was uh, out with friends walking back to her vehicle, um, and, you know, if her friend said that she had her purse with her and the purse is now in the car, we would know she had made it back. If not, she didn't have her purse with her to begin with. She gets taken before she reaches her car with just her car keys. You know, all that kind of stuff comes into play. I imagine, you know, it's several different ways. But in along with uh, the other cases I've been looking at, which is a particular data set, um, it just so happens that... Uh, you know, on January 22nd of 1983, she was headed back to her vehicle. And uh, if she did make it, she didn't leave in her vehicle or she didn't make it. Uh, and the only thing they found missing were her car keys. Um, and that was uh, immediately after the last case that fits the data set I'm looking at, where um, a young lady, a 20 year old was, her car was found and the only thing actually you did say the money was missing her purse and her ID was there. This is with Angie Hamby. Yeah. The money was missing, right? I believe it's missing. Okay, uh, it's well, reported it as missing, but then it sort of drops. They don't talk about it again, either way. They just talk okay, about it being her, a possible motive. Her purse and her ID were in her car. Like when Co her car correct. was found. Her and driver's license and her, her purse are in there. And so I'm trying. I'm sure this seems very chaotic. Uh, it seems chaotic while I'm trying to explain it. Uh, it's really hard to try and explain how my brain works because it. It's I not chaotic at all. That's why I was taking it one case at a time for you. <laughs> and so, uh, there, so the reason that this is like relevant is because so now you've got in this, uh, you know, set of data that has been whittled down to a set of circumstances. Um, two 20 year olds that are both missing they are these two are uh quite a bit of ways apart but they're also time wise it's october and january right so it's yeah. not an un it's not an insurmountable distance for anybody right right okay okay so we've got one more case uh so i'm going to I'm going to give the description of the next case, and this is what I want you to do while you're sitting there, if that's okay. I would like for you to take these four, and I want you to tell me in 1982 and 1983 what days of the week they happened on. Okay. All right, so the next one that fits in your mix, this is a case you found from March 10th, 1983. Um, this is the case of Frankie Darlene Horsley. And she's 19 years old when she goes missing. She was last seen in Fayetteville, North Carolina on March 10th, 1983. She had gone to the pharmacy to get medicine for her baby son who had had a fever. She never returned and she has never been heard from again. A week later, Horsley's vehicle was found locked and abandoned in South Carolina on Interstate 20 West 
near mile marker 44, headed in the direction of Georgia. Some of her clothes were inside of the car, but her keys were missing. At the time of her disappearance, Horsley was separated from her son's father. Her own mother had died in a car accident when she was young, and she was raised by her aunt and her uncle. Subsequently, they adopted and raised her son as well. Her disappearance is considered highly suspicious, and one of her cousins stated she would only have contacted the family if she, that she would have contacted the family if she could have. Uh, her case remains unsolved. Uh, so Frankie Horsley is 19 years old. She's around five foot two, five foot three inches tall, and she was 125 pounds. She had brown hair and blue eyes. And this information comes from the Charlie Project. Uh, there's a little bit of information in Namus. And uh, the Cumberland County, North Carolina Sheriff's Office. Now, there is one little blurb I found, uh, which is referenced, and I think Charlie Project had a link to it. Uh, in 2018, in February of 2018, uh, they talked to her son at NBCNews.com. Uh, his name is Roger Seeley. When Roger was 18 months old, his mother, uh, Frankie Horsley, disappeared. Um, so they go into some details here and they talk with a Sergeant Bean from the local sheriff's office. He was a detective senior sergeant. His name is Adam Bean. He's considered to be the lead detective on the case in 2018. Uh, and that he did clarify that her keys were missing. Um, he, he noted that it was very difficult for them to find any witnesses in the case because, uh, by the time he got it, it was a 35 year old cold case. So he did say that he interviewed a person of interest in Darlene's disappearance, but he would not elaborate further uh, on, on what had happened there because the case is considered an active uh, investigation. That's up 2018. Um, Rogers quote from this, uh, he told Dateline, uh, I was told my whole life that my mom just wouldn't leave me. I was her baby and I was her world. It's just something I know in my gut that I know that she didn't just leave. So Roger firmly believes that there's foul play involved in his mother's disappearance. So those are our four possibilities to, uh, to start. Now we may have to jump around in the timeline here. These four possibilities come about because they're seemingly some, some stuff in common between the descriptions, the missing keys, uh, and things related to, uh, two of the cases being potentially uh, sort of kicked off or ignited at a gas station. All right. So do you have the days of the week on these or are you still looking? I do. Um, so Kelly Dove, uh, June 18th, 1982 is a Friday. Angie Hamby on October 29th, 1982 is a Friday. Darlene Webb on January 22nd, 1983 is a Saturday. And Frankie Horsley on March the 10th, 1983 is a Thursday. Hmm. Now, keep in mind that uh, Darlene Webb's time, she was reported missing, you know, at like, or last to have been seen at like 1.30 a.m. So, you know, that's really close to Friday. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, well, but that, I can't, but is it? Is it Thursday or is it Friday? Because is it like is it is it Wednesday into Thursday or is it Thursday know, into Friday? Darlene Webb 
Right. Her, she went missing on January 22nd, 1983, and that's a Saturday. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. technically, it's Friday night that her trouble starts. Correct. Now, with uh, Frankie Horsley, it is a Thursday, and it I don't know that it talks about what time she left. So it just said she went to go get her son medicine from the pharmacy. Um and so in that situation, you've got a mom who runs out for a quick errand, and then her car ends up locked and abandoned in South Carolina. Now, she's yeah. in North Carolina to start with, right? Yeah. And so her car ends up uh, abandoned in South Carolina with her keys missing. Yeah, so hmm, mile marker 24, I'm going to go have to... I'm going to have to go dig a little more on her case. So I-20. Yeah, it's Interstate 20 West near the 44-mile marker headed in. Mile marker 44. Okay. Yeah. How old was her son when she disappeared? 18 months. 18 months old. Yeah, they said that some of her clothes were inside the car, but I really don't know that that's even relevant. (laughs) Because I was just thinking about when I had a baby, like, I would have had a variety of things in my car just in case. <laughs> 186 yeah. miles away. Uh, That's how long, how far it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, it looks like it's at a rest area, by the way, or I wouldn't say it was a rest area, but like, it's a place you can get off and there's like, there's like a grocery store right there and like other gas stations right there. So it's right. And so, you know, what on earth happened to, Frankie Horsley. Well, I zoned in immediately on the fact that this was the third case uh, in a row that I was looking at in this data set that had a woman, like her vehicle and keys missing. <laughs> it It's odd because it does, that doesn't happen very often. And I don't know that I'm uh, explaining it in a way that like wows other people like it does me. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I understand why it, uh, why it stands out. I would say uh, with, with the, the Florida car, I mean the South Carolina car thing, I think you have to look at where there crimes along that path after between the time um, she disappears and the, and the car is found. My guess is she is probably wrapped up somewhere uh, off a, a road in South Carolina. Um, and that's where you would find Frankie based on previous things uh, related to the suspect. If he's the guy, then that's probably what happened to her. I think this gives people a pretty good idea, though, of what it is that we're trying to tackle right now. I know it's a weird place and time to pick up because it's not the beginning of our timeline. It's no, sort of this is in the random middle, but it was a good example of how we take information that's available and we draw logical conclusions from some of the clues to put together, you know, possibilities, I guess would be a good way to put it. Now, you know, obviously we could come across something at any point in time that would cause us to, you know, cross any of these off of our list, right? Right. Um, or to go back and add something back to the list. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's a good example of, uh, 
sort of the research that we're doing. And, you know, we start with these like huge amounts of information and we whittle them away. Yeah. And so the reason that we're doing all of this is because I'm fairly convinced that there are not nearly as many serial killings in this time period in the geographic region. Like there's not nearly as many serial killers as people would think. And that's why we didn't choose something related on the West coast because you get out to Oregon, the Pacific Northwest and California. It's very difficult because of the, the size of the population. It's very difficult to determine what's been going on when, but if you go back and look at the case of the golden state killer, he was responsible for a ton of crimes that weren't necessarily all murders. My thinking on this is we're probably going to be looking at some unsolved murders, not just missing people that fall into the same timeline. So next week we'll pull a couple of unsolved murders that could potentially be related to some of this and some more missing people to look at. I think that's the best way to keep digging into this. Don't you? Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time. We've only got, with this episode included, we only have five episodes left in our regular season. So we have this episode, um, Thanksgiving week. So I'm going to drop two more episodes that are sort of related to this. Uh, these three together, they're, they're really, um, and I'll mark them part one, part two, part three. They are really uh, sort of a preview of what we're going to be doing in season four. So once these three episodes come up, that'll be Thanksgiving. Uh, we have two more episodes that'll drop where we're going to talk about an older case um, or a killer we've covered before. And then um, after those two episodes, it'll go into our holiday mode. So it'll be slightly different. I mean, there'll still be episodes coming out till the end of the year, but they won't be like the traditional season. There'll be stuff that we're covering uh, with a theme just for the holidays. i
days in 